This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The vaccines could be something regular, like a flu shot. In the future, Moderna testing a possible booster against the South African COVID variant. This is done after a preliminary test suggested the shots produced a weaker immune response to the variant. We'll get into if the vaccines can defend against those virus mutations. Hey, you uh, one of those people that wear cloth masks? Might not be enough. We'll tell you why. Member of the Trump administration's COVID task force, now critical of the whole thing, and uh, her former boss. Too late to save a reputation. If you're worried about the COVID-19 vaccines, can your boss force you to get it? We have an attorney to answer that question. And working from home, opening up all kinds of living options for people. Let's start with Moderna and booster shots. Dr. Bertram Jacobs is a virologist, member of the Biodesign Institute's Center for Immunotherapy, Vaccines, and Virotherapy at Arizona State University. Doctor, explain how the Moderna vaccine works against the Great British variant, as well as the South African one. Clearly, their data says that the vaccine should work for the UK strain, uh, for the South African strain, the, the the antibody titers, the amount of antibodies they make that can neutralize the, the South African strain is lower by about sixfold. They seem confident that it's still high enough to work. Um, I think we just don't know the answer to that yet. They are, again, responding, as you said, by seeing if a, a third, a second booster, a third shot would raise the antibody titers high enough, but also they're also generating um, a new vaccine strain. And that's one of the beauties of the mRNA technology. Relatively quickly, if you see something that you need to change, you can change it and get a new a new vaccine out relatively quickly. You know, it's interesting because we haven't yet heard from uh, the other company, Pfizer, that has uh, its own messenger RNA vaccine. Can one presume that its vaccine would have the, basically the same way it would interact with these variants, or you can't really tell? It's likely it'll be the same. I thought Pfizer came out saying there's uh, would recognize the UK strain. I haven't seen anything from the South Africa about the South African strain for Pfizer yet. So to go back to what you were saying a minute ago about a possible third shot when we talk about these booster, yeah. what are we what are we looking at? Is it like the first dose is the same and then the second, then the booster, or the first dose and then you get this new shot that's tailored to? Well, I. Are they yeah, working I think on what it? they're trying to do is three shots all the same with the current vaccine to see if a third shot would boost it high enough that they would get good protection. While they're while they're doing that, they're also making a new vaccine that 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 will fit directly to the South African strain. And I don't know what they're thinking whether it would be one shot. My guess is it would be two shots of the same vaccine. So that, of course, raises the question, as, as we've all seen, the, the rollout uh, of the vaccines uh, has been less than stellar. Uh, if you add to that either a third dose of the existing vaccines or having people who have already been given the first two doses of the existing <laughs> vaccines come back for yet another new vaccine, I, how do you accomplish all this in a in a year or so, which is the time it's, frame? 
it's very difficult. I mean, we're trying to do things that we've never tried to do before. Um, and we're trying to do it on a background of a, of, of a mutating virus. All viruses mutate. This virus actually doesn't mutate as much as some of the, the really bad ones like flu. So we don't think it's going to be quite like flu, but, uh, you know, we're going to be having to deal with this uh, on a monthly basis, probably, of, of things coming up that we're going to end up having to deal with. Dr. Bertram Jacobs, virologist, Arizona State University. Doctors are now saying your cloth mask might not be enough to protect you and others from getting the COVID variants out there now. There was a time last year the CDC said a cloth mask or really anything would work as a face cover. So what do you do now? Switch to surgical or double up? With us is Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. So doctor, cloth masks, no good anymore? Yes. So, you know, you're absolutely right. Like you said in the introduction that the recommendation on April 3rd from the CDC was just wear what you can find, wear any cloth face covering to prevent infection. Actually, we knew all along from the physical science data that was emerging that they are not like 100% effective in blocking virus, but they were good enough and they were comfortable and they made sense. But um, now with this when we're in our third and worst surge and there is this increased transmissibility of the virus, the idea is turning to, okay, can we simulate something like more N95 capability for the public, which is blocking not just good enough, like 80%, but more like 95%. And what is it about the variants? Is it that there's more viral load, so more slips through and more slipping through your cloth mask at 80% isn't going to do you as much good because you're going to end up catching something? That is, that's exactly right. It looks like their main mechanism is that they bind more tightly to your receptors in your nose and mouth. And so they make your viral load that you produce in your nose and mouth higher. So you're just spewing out more when you talk or do whatever you're doing. And then that can uh, seep through the mask if we're not in great masks. Okay, so then let's talk about the kinds of masks that people now really should be wearing. Does it have to be a N95 mask? Can it be uh, what they call a, K- a K, uh, N95 mask, which I guess is what's made in China? Can it be a surgical mask? What are we talking about? So, you know, um, the what we recommended, and I wrote a paper with a physical scientist, so those are really the people who do all these experiments where they spray things in mannequins' faces that have different masks, is um, it's really the layering of a cloth mask plus a surgical mask. To keep it really simple, that simulates an N95. We're still not saying N95s for the public because they're not that widely available. They're actually really uncomfortable and they have to be fit tested. So the simplest way is two masks, not more than two, and it's actually specifically a surgical plus a cloth. And the surgical can be like a regular surgical or it can be a K95. It's made out of the same material that electrostatically repulses the virus. Well, if you use a, a, KN90, a K95, KN95, do you still need to use that with a surgical mask? No, um, the K95 almost becomes the surgical mask. It's made out of this non-woven polypropylene material that blocks it electrostatically. And then if you want to make the K95 as good as an N95, you put a cloth mask on top of it. So the K95 is almost like a surgical or medical mask in its material and blocking mechanism. And then the cloth blocks it by sheer physical fiber force. And for people who've just been rocking the the cloth mask that they, they got at home or they got on the internet, you know, a while back, uh, these other things, you can find them more widespread now. You can get on Amazon or wherever and find KN95s and you can find boxes of surgical masks at, you know, 50 a pop, right? 
Exactly right. They have become more available. And I would also say that I wouldn't do anything like this outside because outside is so much safer. You're, you know, exercising, you're running around, you're walking around outside. It's not actually for outside. We're recommending this for indoor transmission um, in areas that are kind of going crazy like ours are just coming down, luckily, in California with the transmissibility and then more medically vulnerable people. But if you're just doing your stuff outside and you're younger, I would just go, I would stick with your basic cloth. Now, you know, a lot of people, of course, I, I pass them all the time. They're running and they're running and they're running and they pass me. So they pull up their bandana. No good. Well, the bandana has always had that leakage around the sides. Um, on the other hand, it's such a fleeting exposure that when we think about exposure, we really have to think of mask and also duration of exposure. So I'm someone running past you that's likely okay really um that's why we really want to encourage exercise it's more this is for indoor spaces or you're kind of standing around a lot of people outside just don't follow the runner down the street charles <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, i'm just worried about i'm just worried about the leakage from the side that doesn't sound good <laughs> Side leakage. <laughs> All right, Dr. Gandhi, we'll let you go. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. Dr. Deborah Burks was one of the most visible people on the Trump administration's COVID-19 task force. Now she is speaking out about her experience and her words are not too kind. She says she saw an unorganized mess, but she wouldn't have known at the time she was praising and defending the former president. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is a medical analyst and contributor to Fox News, radiologist, director of breast imaging at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So doctor, why didn't Dr. Burks say anything if she knew that something was off. Well, you know, I find it really interesting. There was uh, a lot of interviews that came across this weekend with Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and they were talking about their experience during the last year under the Trump administration. And, you know, my biggest concern with Dr. Burks is, for the record, I have the utmost respect for her. She has been a pillar in the public health community for 40 plus years. I mean, she's a really a remarkable professional. However, she was describing how that there were graphs being presented that were misrepresenting as though she was the one to actually design them. And listen, jobs come a dime a dozen. Your professional integrity does not. And as a physician, you truly do take that oath to do no harm to your patients. When you are now in charge of public health, you have to do no harm to those around you. So if she truly thought that the public was getting wrong information, dangerous information, she had an oath and an obligation to the people to blow that whistle as loud as possible to get some sort of attention. She said that she was silenced, she said that she was muzzled, but at the end of the day, you pick up a phone, you call media outlets, and I can tell you they would have listened. Oh, yes, and, and the same, by the way, with Dr. Fauci, uh, who uh, I've known on and off since the 80s when he was dealing with the emerging AIDS crisis, and mostly in New York at the time, and then, of course, San Francisco. Uh, and yet, it's the same with him. I mean, he, he says now that, well, you know, I made the decision not to quit because I was better off on the inside. But I'm wondering, what could he point to to show that by him staying on the inside and not blowing the whistle, as you just put it, on the inaccurate information that had been given out by the administration, what can he show by being on the inside really changed the dreadful outcome that we now are all faced with? I mean, we still, you know, had months of, of people peddling hydroxychloroquine. We have, you know, a death rate that surpasses uh, other countries, a hospitalization rate that does. So I don't see what the benefit was by staying on the inside. 
Well, and, you know, I can tell you, we don't really know everything that went on behind closed doors. And, of course, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burst, no one could control what President Trump was making decisions and deciding to do. However, I can tell you that if they had been more vocal, if they had been more argumentative, it would have gotten a lot more attention and it probably would have made more of an impact if they had voiced their opinions, voiced their concerns publicly instead of staying within the inner circle, but silently. I mean, for the last several months, we we heard that Dr. Fauci and Dr. I'm sorry, and President Trump weren't even speaking. So what was he doing? Maybe he was doing some things behind the scenes, but we don't actually know what it was. And I truly think that there would have been more of an impact if they really were more vocal in the beginning, if they felt that information was being given. You think he was as vocal, he being Fauci, as he could have been? You know, there's some reports they wouldn't let him go on certain shows, but he was giving interviews at least most of the time. And he would be straight up and say, yes, this is bad, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Dr. Burks did that kind of tour among the states that didn't get as much attention because I don't think she would get as much attention as Dr. Fauci. It's not the same kind of name, at least in the public. Well, I actually, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Burks. I mean, her her um, scarves made debuts every day at those briefings <laughs> back scarves, in the day. Yes. But, you know, what? that was one thing that she said. She said that while she wasn't able to speak on a national platform, she was going to the states and she was getting the message across about wearing masks. But again, just by going to the states, you are not reaching the masses. The way to reach the masses is to get in front of that TV, get on the radio and talk to the American people. I understand that they felt that it, they would have done a lot more by staying in the inner circle of their position. However, I can tell you, I don't think that to be true. I think if Dr. Fauci had come out early on and truly rebuttaled what the president was saying, I think it would have had a much bigger impact. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, look, I mean, I don't know what their individual finances are, but I got to think that that Dr. Fauci, for example, if if he had to quit or if he was fired uh, somehow from his job, I I doubt he would be on the streets. So I'm not quite (laughs) sure what, you know, I'm not quite sure what the risk was to him personally. Well, and Dr. Burks actually just retired uh, about a month ago. So she was already approaching retirement. So why didn't she retire sooner to really get the word out? To really, If she felt strongly about something, if she felt that information was being kept from the American people, wouldn't it behoove her as a physician, as a healthcare professional, as a public health expert to get that information out? And it would have changed minds, although not all, right? Because there were some people who were going to believe what President Trump said no matter what. Well, absolutely. And by the way, the people who are extreme on both sides, you're never going to change the way that they believe, especially on very certain things. However, we can move their mindset. We can mold their thinking to at least acknowledge the benefit of something else without negating their concerns. And that's what needed to be done. Unfortunately, people were dismissive. They were dismissive of the people who said hydroxychloroquine works, even though the data didn't show it, even though the far majority of scientific studies did not show a benefit by censoring people and by saying absolutely not and quieting them only promulgated those concerns of of people being censored and of conspiracies. And so if we actually had public health experts that we felt we could trust to give us that information, then perhaps maybe we wouldn't have seen such controversy early on, which has caused, unfortunately, a delay and widespread transmission of a virus, which maybe we would have been able to contain early on had we made better decisions. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, medical analyst, contributor to Fox News, radiologist, director of breast imaging at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Doctor, thanks. Coming up after a short break, can you be fired for refusing to get a vaccine? 
If everyone gets the vaccine, the pandemic can end and we can all get back to the old normal. Businesses that want things back to the way they were might try to do their part by requiring workers to get a vaccine shot. What if workers say no? What then? Can your boss force you to get the vaccine? Employment attorney Kent Perry with KYW's Charlotte Reese. I wouldn't say that an employer could force someone to get the vaccine. If a person doesn't want to get the vaccine, that's their individual decision. But they can set the terms of your employment. In Pennsylvania, employment's what they call at will, which means that an employer can fire you for any reason or no reason at all, really, uh, unless it falls afoul of some kind of statute, uh, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act or Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So in looking to those statutes, we can see how the flu has been treated, for instance. Flu vaccine has been previously the issue of some fighting between employers and employees, whether or not the employer could require the employee to get a flu vaccine as a term of their employment. And generally speaking, in the past, employers have been able to require that their employees get a flu vaccine as a condition of their continued employment. Now, there are, generally speaking, two exceptions to that kind of requirement. One is under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, where an employee can be exempt from that requirement of their employer if they have a disability that is covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act and which prevents them from taking that vaccine. If they have such a disability and it prevents them from taking the vaccine, then your employer has a duty to make what's called a reasonable accommodation for you, unless there's an undue hardship to that employer, uh, which the ADA defines as significant difficulty or expense. Uh, so it's kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. Your employer, you're going to have to let your employer know that you believe you have a disability that prevents you from, or some other medical condition that prevents you from taking this uh, coronavirus vaccine. And then your employer has to undergo its own evaluation in order to see whether or not that's a reasonable accommodation, whether they can allow you to telework from home or give you additional protective equipment or move your desk. And if they can do so without undue hardship, then they should make that accommodation. But if there is some additional expense or undue hardship for your employer, then they have no duty to make that accommodation, and they can either require you to get that shot or terminate your employment. The other exception to this requirement of getting a coronavirus vaccine would be under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, where an employee could be excused from taking this vaccine if they have a religious exemption, where they say that they have sincerely held religious beliefs, practices, or observances, and taking this vaccine would violate those religious beliefs. It's a little bit of a different standard from the viewpoint of the employer there. So you would let your employer know that you had a religious exemption under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And your employer would then undergo a similar analysis to see whether or not they could provide, again, a reasonable accommodation that would not pose an undue hardship to them. An undue hardship under Title VII is a lower standard than that under the ADA, where Undue hardship is defined as more than a de minimis cost to the operation of the employer's business. So nominal expenses the employer might undertake in order to 
maintain your employment and not make you get the vaccine. But if there's any kind of substantial expense that they're going to have to suffer as a result, then they're under no obligation to give you that accommodation under Title VII. The ability to work from home is causing more employees to think about their living options. A nearby subway or train stop isn't so important now. Michelle Reisdorf, jobs expert at Robert Half, talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto. So many more employees are um, feel really confident about how well employees have transferred to remote workforces. And so, you know, as an employee, you could, if your company allows it, you could honestly look to moving anywhere as long as you're still capable of doing your job. That means that more employers, it sounds like you're saying they're getting more comfortable with it. At first, many were not comfortable with it, and so they thought this would be temporary. Now here we're, we're almost a year into it. Maybe it's not so temporary. Right, exactly. You know, I think a lot of employers have seen that employee productivity has continued strong uh, during the remote workforce. And in a lot of cases, they're seeing employees that have put in more hours, you know, because they don't have to deal with things like a commute, et cetera. So, they're definitely feeling more confident about a remote workforce. Now, if employers said, all right, you don't have to commute all the way down here anymore, so maybe we're not going to pay you as much, how do employees feel about that? Well, uh, we're showing that 75% of employees are not willing to take a pay cut. So, (laughs) you know, that definitely (laughs) doesn't feel real good. Um, And, you know, companies are taking a look at what does that look like? You know, do we pay based on the company office location? Do we pay based on the employee's new location? Um, You know, right now, companies are definitely swaying towards paying where the company office is located um, because it definitely improves retention. When it comes to uh, people leaving, I I wonder if there would be some concern about, hey, I have this job. I like it. I can work remotely. So I move to wherever. Name your spot. But then if for some reason you lose that job, it seems like it might be difficult to get a a similar sort of job if you've moved. Well, um, Somewhat maybe, you know, it depends. Again, employers are so open to remote workforce right now that I honestly, I, I feel like no matter where you move, as long as you're open to a remote so, uh, search and from a technology standpoint can handle the connection remote, you could pretty much probably get that same job anywhere across the United States. Does this, uh, the fact that so many people can work remote, what, what does it do to the talent pool for companies that many of which are used to having to have people who live somewhat close in order to work there? Yeah, the remote workforce definitely opens up your talent pool um, because you have so many more options than what is based in the city that you work in. You know, for large metro markets, you know, of course, you've got a larger employee base. But for some, you know, companies located in some of the smaller cities, if you're open to remote workforce, you can look anywhere. And when it comes to employers, that's good, right? Because they have this wider pool. When it comes to employees, though, it seems like that's a challenge because there's now more people competing for your job. Absolutely, for sure. Um, But it also allows you to look at, you know, if you're in a smaller city, it, uh, it opens up the job opportunities because you can, again, look at larger markets. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, because you're not just necessarily looking where you live. Thank you so much. Yeah, good insight. Michelle Reisdorf, a Chicago jobs expert at Robert Half here in Chicago. The Super Bowl is in two weeks. It's basically an unofficial holiday. Almost everyone watches it, whether it's from the game or the commercials. Everyone always talks about the commercials, though. And one company seems to be always at the center of the post-game commercial analysis, Budweiser. Every year, the company comes out with something memorable, but not this year. Budweiser says it's not advertising during the Super Bowl for the first time in 37 years. 
The company says it's using the money it would have spent on Super Bowl ads. It's about five and a half or so million dollars and is using it to support critical COVID-19 vaccine awareness with donations and future ad campaigns. The company official says it wants to be proactive in promoting vaccine awareness since it will eventually lead back to normalcy. Put the vaccine in six packs and then ship them out. And then everybody will have it. There's your distribution. Six doses. (laughs) We solved the problem. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.